Well, here we are again, back at the Conflab with Nate Cartledge, which is me. Hey, I'm so humbled and stoked to have you in this space with me today. Let's tap on in. All right, before we get started, we just want to thank our great friends at Studio 6 Burley on the Gold Coast. They are such a great support to me and the Conflab helping us get this out to you all the time. So if you're a content creator, if you have a a long-term podcast or you're looking to start a podcast or you need a studio for anything, reach out to them at Studio 6 at Burley on the Gold Coast. They are amazing. Thanks again, guys. All right, so I just want to welcome everyone back to the Conflab. Thank you for joining us today. I'm really honoured to have John Wynn as a guest today on the Conflab. John is a, a formal, a formal, a former special forces operator with the Australian uh, Army, the the uh, the Army, so the RAF. And um, John went through a real process as he was growing up, but we can see that transferred over into his life during his time in the special forces, and then needing coping sorry coping mechanisms uh, while he, from what he saw and what he went through. Uh, in in at the wall or in in wherever he was in Afghanistan, I, I guess uh, so we went to Afghanistan and Iraq, John. Yeah, uh, just Afghanistan. Yeah. Just Afghanistan, and John was also shot there too. So there was plenty of uh, reasons why he needed coping mechanisms to go through that war. And his story hasn't really been told. He's not that well known, and I really want to get John's story out. So eventually. Uh, just needing to actually process the pain, not just physical pain, but obviously the emotional pain that he was going through. Uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, substance use and and other things that John needed to actually apply to his life. So eventually he got uh, discharged, failed a drug test, and that's really where the journey begins. I mean, there's a lot in his in his his young life, and I want to jump into some of that. You know, he had quite a dysfunctional dysfunctional family and. And we can say that, and that's pretty pretty common these days. But it's not it's not something that we should water down. Like where John's journey ended up was was a lot to do with his childhood. So I'm gonna I'm just gonna let him go. John, thank you for being on here with us, mate. And we're hoping this next hour or so is is great. And looking forward to getting your story out, mate. Yeah, thanks, Nate. Uh, it's great to be on here. Like uh, as I said before, I enjoy doing these. I like um, sort of sharing my story, and um, I think there's a lot of value that um, sort of, especially the young guys coming through, can sort of take from me. Like you know, you, um, I sort of had to walk the walk. Um, I remember going to AA and NA meetings when I was younger, and listening to all the old timers speak and stuff like that. And now I, um, I have a bit more appreciation for it. Now I've, I've done some time. I've had to go through. I do a lot of work myself, so I like coming on and um, sharing my experience, mate. But you started here with with saying some of the stuff around your with your family, and your father was was uh, abusive with alcohol, and and there was quite a lot of dysfunction in your family, which which made you become quite sensitive and quite a protector. Can you just explain, if you don't mind going into that a little bit? Yeah. Can you just explain because the platform that that builds for how you. Uh, operated as a special forces operator is is really important for us to understand why you actually were built that way, why that culture was built into your life. Yeah, look, um, in my journey um, and trying to find out and understand how I got to where I was in life, 
you really got to go back to the start. Um, and your our, our childhood and our our blueprint is really formed when we're little, yeah. And um, working with um, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, and they help you sort of explain how you ended up the way you are. And once you see that um, and understand it, it gives you the power back. And then in the same vote, I had to understand how my my family ended up that way, what happened to mum and dad. And, you know, like um, a lot of this is generational, you know, I guess. And they, they were just doing the best they could. But um, like my my old man who was um, working, he's a fisheries inspector, so like a, a fish cop, I guess you could say. And so we moved around quite a lot when we were little. So um, like I was born in Newcastle in Belmont. Um, my I've got three siblings, so an older brother, two younger sisters. Um, my old man was a, a, a fisherman. I come from a fisherman family uh, who used to dominate sort of the, um, the Newcastle, Lake Macquarie area. Um, so when he became a, a fish cop, a fisheries inspector, we moved around every two years. Um, now, mum and dad, they, I think they had me. I was, I'm the second oldest. They had me at 20, 21, 22. Yeah. So four kids were all pretty much a year apart. Um, so it's a lot of pressure. Oh, wow. for it's it's not really common these days. No, um, no. Yeah, so they a lot of pressure on them. They were moving every two years. Uh, didn't have much stability. Didn't have any real support. There was support, but they were isolated in this. And, okay. Um, yeah, I guess looking back, Dad um, didn't handle things too well. Um, and back then, the world was different. The way people, dealt, the family issues weren't spoken about. But Dad, um, I understand now his coping mechanism. I guess with four kids, the pressure of providing for the family. Uh, he would drink, drink a lot. Um, and what, when you, and I, I understand this now in my journey, when you drink, uh, you use uh, substances to cope, you, it changes you and you, you do things which aren't in your true nature. Um, you become someone else and you have a lot of regrets. And um, dad, uh, yeah, become, he become quite abusive. He, um, didn't know how to, I, I understand now, he just didn't know how to handle it. And when he drank, he'd get angry, uh, physically abusive. Um, watching that as a child, uh, I got quite timid. Um, I was anxious a lot, um, nervous a lot. And I understand now it's um, when you're not in a, an environment as a child where you feel comfortable and you don't know what each day looks like and it's unpredictable, um, you get some um, some traits and some coping mechanisms yourself and it doesn't really set you up for um, a good stable platform for life. And um, I sort of understand that now. But back then, I didn't really know what was happening. Yeah. My, my siblings uh, were doing the best they could. Um, my brother actually doesn't really – he's older than me and he doesn't remember our sort of childhood. He doesn't yeah. remember this stuff. Yeah. He, he coped with it differently. He, he just shut up, shuts it off. Shuts, shuts it out. That's his protective mechanism. Yeah. Um, but I remember this um, quite vividly. Um, so I, I developed some abandonment issues, um, some self confidence. Um, yeah, it was just really anxious. Anxious. And when you understand um, addiction, and you know, the people who become addicts are usually really sensitive people. And uh, yeah. we use things to calm ourselves, to soothe, to fit in, to feel like we belong. Um, so that's just really where um, I my sort of blueprint was formed. Um, and I, I think I mentioned this, like watching watching mum go through these stresses and 
she she drank quite a bit as well. Um, well, back when I say quite a bit, like he, I can't say she was an alcoholic. Um, only that she can identify as that really. Yeah, like I can say she drank a lot, but she was coping as well. And I remember one of the first um, coping mechanisms I had was comfort eating, and yeah. I picked this up. I, I picked this up from mum. Wow. I used to get up late at night, and she'd be up um, just eating really late at night, and um, I'd never really put two and two together, but I started to do the same thing and then I got quite big as a kid um, and that sort of shaped me as well to be picked on at school and whatnot and like it, as, as a child, like um, I guess all those things affect you, yeah. So yeah. my first coping, coping mechanism was um, comfort eating, yeah. Wow. And, um, yeah, so I obviously had to go through a lot of therapy to understand this um, and then that led into um, – yeah, sport and stuff like this, which was my next coping mechanism. But yeah, you say yeah. that about that. I just want to highlight a couple of things that you you brought up through through that with your father. And yeah, I really want to give props to people in that era. Um, I think I'm a little bit younger than that era. But that era was was really an era where yeah, you just suck it up. There is no help. Uh, and for all the fathers out there that have now looked back and have regret because of the way they may have operated, maybe drank too much, maybe were a little abusive, maybe things didn't work out, maybe they got divorced, maybe there's mental illness issues now because they couldn't understand then. That was an era where you just don't speak up. You don't talk about this. You, you there's, Vulnerability was a weakness where now we all know that vulnerability is an absolute superpower and and men need to speak now about these things. So I just want to I just want to give props to all the dads like your dad, your mum. How are things now with your parents, John? Yeah, look, um, I haven't really spoke with my old man in a while. And like, uh, I I had a rough patch for probably about ten years or so. Where, yeah, yeah. And this is when I was using and drinking, and I used to start reliving a lot of this stuff, and I had a lot of blame and finger pointing and. Um, mum sort of justifying and uh, I had to go through my, all my shit to come out the other side and actually used to say look it's not it's not your fault it is sort of your fault but it's look the circumstances were different it was a totally different yeah. different world yeah um, and like like I, I seen the other day here um, and there was uh, a father and he was he was uh, laying into his son quite a bit yeah and the amount of people that come over and stopped it and like I was in a bit of shock and like I didn't. I don't see this stuff happening anymore. But when in, in, when I was a kid, this was happening all the time. Yeah. Like in, in, in like in, in Australia, it was um, yeah common practice. Just normal. And and yeah, like no no police were called. No, like yelling, screaming. Um, like in this protector sort of um, um uh, traits I got on. Like I was we watched when what happened used to happen to mum, and I couldn't do anything and trying to hold the door shut with her when I was like four, five. Yeah, I can remember this and wow. dad getting in and like me not being able to protect mum and that shaped me to sort of do what I did but in, in, in later in life. But um, now if you hear that, <laughs> the police will be called. But back then it was different. It was just totally different and, and that's okay. That's okay. Like the times change, the world changes and that's yeah. okay. Yeah, like you, like you said, those things. And I think there is a, I think there is a movement of trying to avoid victimhood um, in today's psychological society or philosophical societies is is you're not a victim, you're not a victim, you're not a victim. But that doesn't work. And that's probably a little bit of toxic, toxic positivity when it comes to, well, actually, I am. 
a victim. I was a victim. And changing that language from this happened, this did actually happen to me because if we focus on, well, I'm not a victim of it, then then we're trying to change the reality of the fact that it did happen to us. And so I like more what you've just said is like, actually it did happen to you, but now you've turned that around and it's happened for you to change the way that you think, the way that you operate, and the way you care about other people. So yeah, yeah, de- yeah, definitely. Yeah, like it's like I can't change the fact. Like it did, it did. These things did happen, but did. now I have now I have a responsibility because I'm aware. Yeah, um, that's right. A lot of people go through life and they don't. It's just ah, this has happened to me, and they they don't they don't. Um, yeah, I think it just comes down to awareness. And like for me, I seen um, and I, I remember saying this when I was getting quite young that. I don't want to pass on these things um, to my children. So eventually, when I'm old, you know, I'm 37 this year. Like it's about time. I um, still yeah, two, three years ago. To, to, yeah. Um, yeah, just uh, I, I can stop this. I can break the link. Yeah, 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 yeah. No longer a victim of, but uh, it, the good things come out of it. You know, so well, yep. well done. Um, sports and fitness were a big part of your life, but they became an addiction. Now you said you never went anywhere with sport, but for some reason, right. you know, you said you were a little bit bigger because you're eating, you're comfort eating, and so on, and you did get a bit bullied. Did that push you into sport? Yeah, I, I think I believe so. Uh, so um, when I sort of started playing sport when I was younger, like I, I seen the recognition that I'd get out of it, and okay. I'd get actually become um somewhat popular or i would get get a bit of you know, recognition and it, that would give me confidence and then i never had the confidence there so this was like uh the better i went at sport yeah. the more attention i could get yeah. and now as a kid i never like i felt i didn't get much attention i was scared timid all these things so this empowered me yeah so i i understand now the mechanism which happened so I and what I'm sort of doing again in life now, like I go 110% into my exercise and sport, and I, I work hard and I do, I do more than most people, and it's I'm craving a bit of the um, the the status, I guess, is a lack of a better term, but it, it makes me it gives me um, a chance to express myself and it makes me feel whole and it, yeah, it gives me an opportunity to yeah, show, show who I am. Um, uh, at, yeah, at the cost of. Um, I've seen yeah. some of your stuff that you've been doing, and when I, when I uh, had, you know, when we we put this together to, for you to come on, someone asked me, so who's John Wynn? And I said, well, he's a bit like a da- Australian Davy Goggins because you seem to push <laughs> yourself a little too hard. But I'm not <laughs> saying a little too hard. We could always push ourselves a little further, but so I think that's a pretty good explanation of what I see you do because um, it's quite extreme. And before we go there, it is it is interesting that a lot of high-level sports people are are quite insecure and a lot of them have, are driven in that place and it's maybe a mechanism to help them get better or I, I don't know. There's no wrongs, is there, really? It is, it is just what it is. Yeah, I think any great sportsman or athlete comes from a place of um, like there, there's a reason behind it. There's, there's a fuel, there's a motivation and it's generally to um, to get out of a, a, a situation, or not always, but it's to um, to to get out of a position they're in. So you get opportunities, um, 
uh, and then the, the struggle becomes once you get out of that situation, keeping it. But um, yeah. I think it, there's, a, there's a reason uh, a lot of great athletes they come from um, struggle. So did that mind? And I think this is, yeah. Sorry, I'll cut you off then. No, no, that's like the, the struggle. Like yeah. People have come come through struggle and this is the um, sort of how I can do what I do now with my sport and I, um, I use all my experiences and I, I can do some pretty um, high-level things in, in a particular sport which I compete in now, which is really, really tough. Yeah. I, mean, I, I use all that, yeah. I want to I get into high rocks and we'll just pause that yeah. for a moment because like yeah. it's new to me, high rocks, and it's pretty intense though. However, did that like did that mindset that you had with the sports? Like you, you, you said you didn't get anywhere with the sports. It didn't take you where you really wanted to go with it. But did that mindset, did that of of needing to challenge yourself and push yourself in a new era, did that transfer and always having to get out of something? Did that transfer over into becoming an elite, uh, an elite uh, special forces operator? Yes, yeah, so I can. Um, I definitely. Uh, when like I tried to make it in rugby league, um, I didn't quite get there. I was a javelin thrower in athletics, got an injury, um, and moving to special forces, it was always like the way I describe it is the rep, rep footy. So you played club and then there was rep and there was like it was the next level, yeah. next tier. So so it was directly uh it's directly related. Like um the sort of, you know, in special forces for people who apply to actually getting a beret, it's one in three hundred people make it. So it's not not much. It's it's elite, and uh, it's, uh, so it's it's hard. It's tough. Um, you need mental resolve. You need physical capacity. You need to be intelligent. You need to be able to problem solve on the move. You need there's a lot of traits you need. And when you look at when I look around, um, you know, a lot of my comrades and soldiers I, I went through with, like, you know, we're all we're all a tough guys who come from you know, uh, various backgrounds, but we all have something in common is, is we're not, we're sort of above average and we're, um, we're risk takers. Um, we're, um, like even though I was sensitive as a kid in the military, I was desensitized. Yeah. I could do things, I could operate. Um, and that's uh, a lot of us have the same traits. We can just get the, get the job done under extreme conditions. But what, what was the very thing that actually, that made you go that way. It made you go into the military and join the special forces. And how did that door open for you? Yeah. So uh, once I got to uh, about eighteen, nineteen, I'd left school. Um, I didn't. Wasn't some of my mates got picked up um, by some clubs for rugby league. Uh, we all played rep growing up. I didn't um, didn't get picked up. So. I was um and ahhing about what to do um, and I was actually working in a – I was a brookie and I was in a timber mill and uh, I come from a small town, so at this time I'm living up in uh, Lauriton, which is near Port Macquarie. Yeah. So I'm on the, on the north coast. Um, people either got apprenticeships and they stayed locally or they moved out. Yeah. And, uh, there's not many people who moved away. Um, and I, I wanted to leave like uh, – and this, you got to remember this stage, uh, I'm, what, 20, so uh, 2009-11 was mm. um, when the, these uh, attacks happened in New York. Wow. And so I was in your, when this happened on uh, year, year 9, year 10, around then. Um, so I was shaped by, a lot by this. <clears throat> um, I'd always sort, sort of 
uh, I didn't notice this at the time, but I always wanted to be a protector. I wanted to be a hero. Yeah. I wanted to be here. Yeah. And um, my brother actually tried to get in the military a few times and uh, he failed just some aptitude and, and psychological stuff, but he tried a few times and he couldn't get in. So um, I found one of his magazines <laughs> like in his room and it had a, a program in there um, which was Special Forces Direct Entry to be a commando. <clears throat> so after, after 9-11 happened and uh, I think, the government realised we we're going to be going to war for a while. Um, they had uh, SAS, which were in Perth, uh, and uh, they wanted to raise another a unit, so they raised a commando unit. So they're going to have two special forces units, and they needed to recruit soldiers. So they had um, didn't have enough soldiers from regular military transferring over doing selection, and then you know wanting to go to war. I guess um, this is a bit of a, a quick synopsis, but. Um, basically they needed to get soldiers through to go to war and um, they they set up this program so you had to have an officer aptitude you needed to have a bit of a sporting background um, you needed had to be between the ages of 19 and 30 and you needed to fit a certain psychological profile and um, I, I seen this I applied uh, went in for testing um, did really well on that they wanted me to uh, gave me the option to go to Dunshroon to be an officer. Uh, I, di- I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be a, a commando because it was status. It was, yeah. it was the, the, yeah. the special elite. It was elite. And yeah. I always see myself as being able to do things um, more capable than others in physical capacity. So okay. applied and then got went through all the testing, um, got selected. So each year there was – it's still running, I, I believe. Um, so it's 30 to 40 guys per year will get selected and you – um, I was fortunate enough to go um, and get selected with these guys and go through the whole testing and selection process. But that was still one in 300, though. <laughs> you're, you're one of... Yeah, yeah. 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 That is a massive... Yeah. Yeah, that's a massive prop. So that would have, in, in itself, probably fed a little bit of that ego that you got yeah, in? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, more yeah, you yeah, yeah. saying that, I, I think it's needed in, in that. And like Australia's got to be very thankful for the fact that young guys like you who is shaped that way, go, yeah, look, I'm in, I'm going to go, I'm a protector. No matter what your journey was pre to do that, without without young men like yourself, like we're wide open. We, we need we needed people to be shaped that way. So thank you for your service, firstly, and yeah, and uh, one in 300 is a big effort, mate, so well done. So now you are yeah. actually in the, SA, in the SAS. No, com- commander. Commander. So Special Forces. So commander. Com- yeah, commandos are in Sydney. Uh, uh, SAS are in Perth. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I, um, I went lucky enough um, and fortunate enough I didn't get an injury, went through basic training at Kapuka. Then I went straight to infantry training in Singleton and Newcastle. Then, um, so at each stage as well, dudes drop off. Yeah. Uh, they fail to meet the next standard or they get injured or they just say, this is not for me. So after, I think, basic training we lose 10 people something like this and then you go to infantry training we lose a few more then straight after that we go advanced infantry so we they have um, we have some um some sort of team leaders from uh, commandos and sas they come and work with us for eight weeks they're doing their promotion course and we're their soldiers so we learn tactics for selection and then we, after we do this eight-week course we go on selection course uh with everyone else in the army <laughs> so oh, wow. like this is all in, in the first year of being in the military uh, so we're very green we're unexperienced 
um, but in the same vote, we've been handpicked to for this for this uh, this occasion. So we're, we're prepared, but underprepared at the same yeah, time. Right. So yeah, so we go on selection. Um, it's like a hundred people sort of start, and that's um, that's a pretty pretty normal sort of commando selection course. Um, that goes for thirty five days. I think it's because it's not just a selection course; it's a bit of a training course as well. I think it's one of the longest in the world for selection courses. Okay. Uh, and fortunate enough to get all through that, all through the testing, uh, lose a shitload of weight, um, really get tested, um, uh, and like you know, some some of the physical things we had to get through were pretty insane. Yeah. Like the last the last three days of selection is no food, no sleep oh. for three days, and you're, you're constantly challenged with tasks, um, exercises. They're just constantly testing to see your resolve. Mm-hmm. see how far you can go and they want the person to quit they want you to say i can't do this anymore because that's they want to cut they want to get rid of these people you know, if you can't do it in a selection course in a sterile environment how are you going to do this at war exactly so the whole the whole process is they're seeing like we just start a pt session it's like we're not we're not stopping until three people quit that's <laughs> it okay so and you there's no time limit um yeah, so it, it definitely helps in what I do now where I've got a time limit. I know yeah. this then. Back yeah. then, back then I, I didn't know, and even going to war, going on some operations, there's no time limit. I don't know when we're coming back and, and if, yeah. So, um, but it, that was it was a really good experience to get through that. Um, I draw on a lot of that, that, that testing and experience uh, that I had to go through in, in the selection course in life now. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, got through that. Um, there's... I can't remember how many people, probably about 30, 40, get, get through the course. Um, and then you go on to reinforcement, which is uh, you've got to get all your skill sets. Yeah. So you're not, you're not, not very qualified. You've got to pass everything else. And that's really where, um, like, you've shown the physical capacity, you've shown the psychological, but now you have to get the skills. Skill up. And this is, this, yep, this goes for back then it was about six, seven months, maybe eight months. Um, and that's where you get, Close quarter fighting, parachuting, you know, demolitions, medic, urban operations, uh, oh, everything to be a qualified commander. So that goes on and you lose people all the way through that as well. Mm. Um, so and then by the end of it, there's... Yeah. So go on, how many, how many were there by the end of it? Uh, off the top of my head, I think around 20. Wow. Yeah. Well, there yeah. you go. And so, you, you got through that. So now you are actually in the commandos, been through your training, been accepted, lasted... Yeah. And uh, you shipped off. Yeah, literally, we get into uh, the unit, uh, and then we knew that our selection course going through was uh, where the next uh, company um, in the in the commando regiment who was going to war. So we we uh, all those people on our course selecting us were our team commanders and sergeants, and um, so it was uh, a lot of hype around it. Like we we knew this is. This is like we're going to war. This is like training for football, a game, and like we actually get to play now. So, uh, you, going so were you unit. excited or were you nervous or nervous and excited? What was the feeling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. nervous, excited, uh, a bit surreal, um, proud, a lot, a lot of things. Oh, cool. So we get to the unit and then we go to our company. Um, so our company just come off counterterrorism, so they're very experienced guys, really experienced, and uh, then we start preparing for war we go do our our, our, our mission ready uh, stuff then in uh, south australia go on the ranges we start learning how each each uh, team member operates in our uh, our teams and sections and platoons and then 
literally, like I got to the unit in April 2009 and we deployed in June. Uh, it was uh, really fast. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so I was, I was 22 at this time. And uh, as a 22-year-old Special Forces commando at war, is, that's young. That's it's very young. young. I was one of the youngest, yeah. Before we go on with the story, like how long were you in totally? So 2009 so, you were in? Yes, I listed October 2000 and, uh, oh, 2007, October 2007, and then uh, I discharged to uh, mid-2013. I was a commando for five years. Right. Nine to, wait, nine, ten, eleven, thirteen, yeah, that's five yeah. years. Yeah, okay. So then you then you get deployed over to Afghanistan, two thousand nine Ju- June two thousand nine. Yep, first tour. Yeah. And how many tours did you end up doing? So I did three fighting tours back to back, and then in two thousand twelve I did a, a longer term so um, sort of PSD, which is a, a sort of personal security detail. So I was tasked in like a four man team looking after a, a three star general, our highest ranking. Uh, general in Afghanistan, so well, what a, um, what a privilege that would have been. Yeah, yeah, um, and that sort of got me into contracting, which I did when I left the military, um, yeah. working in those environments where uh, it's a bit like a so contracting is a bit like a mercenary, but in, in the military we were yeah, like looking after a general, so it was very you know like low key, just our two two vehicles, uh, just a small team, small presence, but high risk, really yeah. high risk. Yeah, so what so we. When when did you see like you've been deployed you've you've seen uh you you've you've been at war you've you've fought you've seen some things starting to happen obviously there's not a lot of emotional support in the army uh, or in the special forces and so you're not and that's that's just I'm not I'm not actually uh, make, saying that's bad well maybe it is <laughs> because there's a there's a lot of young fighters with PTSD and, and depression and all sorts of emotional anxieties and stuff like that they don't know how to deal with. I, I imagine that suicide is probably one of the highest forms of getting uh, out of all those feelings uh, for for young guys coming back from war. However, when did you start seeing there was a problem? So my my I had, I had a, uh, a long-term girlfriend, so we were together from 16 to I was about 26, on and off. Yeah. But... um. She, she uh, come to me. I think it was. We've been my second tour. After my second tour, she's like, "You need help. Um, the, uh, you, you're drinking a lot. You're drugging a lot. Um, I'm not present. Uh, I seem to be escaping and not dealing with situations. And basically, I, I wanted to go back to war. Okay. Uh, I was more I was more comfortable at war yeah. than I was in the real world. Um, I think this, this is quite common as well. Like I look forward to going back because. Um, I was good at war. I was good at being there, going through um, just adversity, the struggle, the near death experiences, was exciting. Got paid well, got fit, uh, and I was doing. Uh, I felt what I was doing was uh, valuable, and I think I was, I was contributing to um, the, a bigger cause. But, it, but generally, um, yeah, well, basically, it was my, my my partner said you need to get help. I refused to get help, um, and then we broke up, and then things just sort of progressively got worse and worse and um yeah like it didn't didn't really like my drinking and uh, my drugging didn't really affect me and work too much I, I partied hard but I worked hard and um you know like a 
I was a good good soldier, like I got medals at war, like stuff like this. And uh, it's pretty common with guys who generally who get medals and uh, um, high achievers. We usually have uh, another <laughs> some vices. Yeah, it's just the pers- it's just personalities, right? So was that more but, was um, that yeah. more was that more prevalent when you were at, at in Afghanistan or when you were off duty? When you came home, was it just like I, I don't want to be here, and so you drank a lot and, and took a lot of drugs? Yeah, yeah. So at war, I didn't didn't really use much because I was at war and I knew it was very serious. Um, when I came back, and really in my first two hours, the incident where I got um, shot in the back um, and survived. So that was in your that first. And, uh, that was in your first tour. Yeah, it was, uh, I think it was my second ever okay. sort of uh, second gun gunfight. Okay. Yeah. So well, it was a bit of a. Uh, um, I grew up fast. I learned um, how. <laughs> Just switch off and cope with things. So, like in, in my um, my back plate, it hit about an inch or so below um, the the top of it. So uh, when I when it actually happened, I was next to a team member, and um, we we thought well, I was I was whacked. So this is in the middle of summer, and I'm wearing a camelback and waters running down everywhere. And I thought it was blood, yeah. But I remember after this incident, and um, you know, in the future, I'll release sort of details about this incident because I think it's pretty important and it's shaped me. They're sort of um, who I am, but um, uh, I remember that night when we went to sleep, and um, like we didn't have much sleep that night because we're obviously out, we're at field and we're in operations. And I remember waking up and hearing the crack at like three in the morning, four in the morning. I woke up to it and I thought it happened again. And I was like, I remember then, I, like clear as day. I said, this is this has scarred me. This is like something is it's like scarred my brain like with this this incident um and it's um every now and then like it, it hasn't come happened for a while but um what i would wake up to is that crack from the, the round hitting me and uh, rpgs going off above us so this would happen all the time and it's like i can i can suppress this and not talking to you it's okay but there's something in my subconscious which has still got this yeah and um, and no, I at, a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people, um, just never really get over it. Yeah, there's a lot of treatments, EMDR now. There's a lot of therapies which can help remove that. Um, for me, uh, when I drank uh, back then, it would just let me downplay it and eliminate it. Yeah. Um, but then later on in my using, it amplified it. Yeah. <laughs> so at the start it was a coping mechanism and then then it just it, it was working yeah. and then it didn't work anymore and it was actually killing me yeah yeah i.e the the use of any substance and what it does it's used to actually numb those feelings or it's actually used to increase our dopamine to take us away from how mm-hmm. we feel and escape from reality but eventually it just echoes the fact that we're fucked anyway so um <laughs> It just stops working and it does the opposite. Yeah, like yeah. So you've been like, and, and like you've been through uh, four years, four years of being in the in the on the front line, basically in and out of front line stuff, and then and then it, 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 just the using got too much. Yeah. So the sort of uh, I'll just go back quickly in the company. So in the military. Um, you actually you you do a, a psych test after every war trip. You do a, a testing. They need to see that you're actually okay. Yeah. So back then, you didn't tell them what happened. 
He didn't talk about anything because he wanted to go on war again. Yeah. Now, if you spoke up, if you spoke up and you were removed from your platoon or company and you couldn't go back, that's, that's a huge kick Dev- in the Devastating. Kick in the yeah. you, lo- you lose your identity. Like you, There's a big stigma behind it, so you never talked. And now people, as we spoke before, understanding that it's important to talk and get this out. But back then it was a, like – you know, in reference to the, the the life I lived when I was younger, like people didn't talk about shit. They didn't talk about it, especially in the in special forces, because you just get on with the job with tough guys. Um, so I think that sort of changed a little bit. But um, that those near death experiences I had, and you know, losing a lot of mates uh, at war as well, I thought I was invincible. So that that fed when I came back. I knew I was going back to war. I, so. Like that, that encouraged me to live the life I did and keep using and acting like a, I was a bit carrying on like a bit of a rock star. Um, but I knew there was a good chance it wasn't coming back. So that um, all of these things in the play and that's my poor brain. And it was explained to me later by psychiatrists, like your, your brain all through your twenties was just war, mm. abuse, a drug abuse, alcohol abuse. So I constant um, uh, chasing the dragon. I guess is the best way to put it. Chasing the end, like chasing you know. the end. Yeah. Can I can I ask a question in there? Something that's just ticking off yeah. of me. It, did you think was there some anything inside of you that thought that if you were killed at war, then you'd you'd be a hero? I knew if yeah yeah no the, yeah so like I watched um, even before I got to war. Um, like Luke Worsley was, I think, the first one of the first commandos killed. And like, I remember seeing this and like, wow, like, um, yeah, like, I guess you would be seen a bit of idolized, um, like, we're at war doing what only a few would. And I guess part of me, yeah. yeah. So, so there must have been a conflict with you when you were home and using, and probably there's probably stuff going off inside you going, you know, I don't want to be here, I want to be back at war. Feeling maybe, and I, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but this is the, this is what I'm picking up from you, is that maybe feeling a bit of shame and guilt about what you're doing here, get me back to war. If I go there, then I'm a hero, but I don't want to be seen for doing this. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say what I was doing back in the city was shame or anything like that. I knew that what I was doing was I, I gave myself permission yeah, to good. do it okay. be, because of, yeah, because, uh, and it's still a little bit of, I, I wouldn't say grudge, it's, it's, it's a part, it's my life, but it's my past life. So I'm not holding on to it. But, you know, like I, I signed up really young as a, an operator in Special Forces. I went to war, did everything they asked me. Um, and then, you know, I was on a promotion course outside of my command where I got a failed a drug test. And this this is at my uh, end of my military career. And um, I tried to fight it and um, I got some good backing because I guess I was a good soldier. But, you know, I, I accepted I, I, uh, I failed the drug test, but my defense is I, I did everything they asked for me. I went, they've changed it now where you can't do trip year after year okay. after year. You need to have a, you need to have a gap in between right. because it's too much, too much for the, uh, for your mind, too much for your brain to handle. Um, but they needed us to go back. I put my hand up. Um, they asked me to go back. Uh, so my first, my first year at, you know, as a commander, I did, um, 295 days at war as an operator on, in, our, in your first in year operations, which is my first year. Wow. So you had 70 days out of the one year that you weren't. 
Yep, I went as I went with Charlie Company. I got back. Um, they had some incidents in the Alfred Company with um, um, uh, a guy getting killed uh, in training, and they needed someone to put their hand up and go. And they come to me because I was new, and I said, and I was young, and I said, "Yep, as long as um, as long as I can come back to my company." And they, I went straight back. Wow, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you, I, grew, you, I grew up fast. Yeah, you yeah. did grow up fast, mate. Um, yeah, I'm in awe of, of that uh, mindset of just going and going and getting it done. But I can also see the pain and the brokenness in, in that as well. So you failed your drug test. Now you've been discharged from the army. And, and what I what what is interesting to me is that the statement, I lost my identity. So why why did you lose your identity when you were kicked out of the army? When you sorry, and I don't mean to say it harshly, but you were just nah, you were just dis- okay. you were discharged from 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 a dream. Like that's where you got all of your meaning and all of your thing and it had created something about it. So why why was the identity thing so important? The identity was it's well, at the time I thought it's who I am. Like I know nothing else. So essentially I still when I joined I was a boy. Uh, at this point, I'm a man. Um, I'm, I'm doing something which is important. Um, I've looked after. I've been a teams which have been looking after the prime minister when they go to war. Um, but it does some pretty high, high level things for my age. And I thought this is all I know. I'm good at doing it. I'm comfortable. What's next? And the, the fear of the unknown on the other side. I'm okay with it now, but the unknown. Um, so I was going back to starting again whatever this meant like this wasn't optional i was forced to do this um it's i just didn't know like my identity was at that time a commando um okay now i'm a bit more mature i can see it it's just an experience i had it's it's something i can apply to my life now which i live yeah so it was a doing not a being yeah 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 it's a question that we quite often poise on 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 this show that we ask we'll ask the guest and right now I'm going to is who is John? You know, who are you before you're John Wynn? Who are you before you're a commando? Who who so do have you gone down that process of really defining who John the being is rather than John what, what John the doing was? John, uh if I if I look now and um John is uh, like still still a boy who's a little bit timid, who's trying to um, make a, an impact or a splash in, in in the world and still be seen and still be um, still be sort of um, looked up. I, I want I want to do special things and inspire people. Yeah, but I like yeah. I guess. It, it, I've never really had to like in therapy in, in rehabs. I've had to do this, and you're right, yeah. Like who is John? But I guess it's still a, t- a timid boy who's trying to get attention, who's trying to do something special to feel wanted and needed. That's great, mate. Like it really is. Uh, you're honest with your answer, and I appreciate that. And that's where it starts. You know, it starts. I've done a fair bit of therapy myself, and it and not that I've been exposed to anything like you've been exposed to that it starts with, well, this is where I'm at and I'm okay and that's okay. And uh, so well yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. Well, well done nothing, for owning There's nothing it. wrong with feeling this, yeah. Mate. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's empowering, yeah. When you understand that, um, you know, you're not that 
like you are that person, but it doesn't shape you. Like it's, yeah, yeah. you have the power and this is what I try to do, teach people now is to show people by demonstrating and be a role model is, you know, like what happened to us, um, it's, you know, it happened, but it does, you have the, you have the power to be whatever you want now and just, you can change as possible. Ab- yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we've been through, <laughs> we've been through four years of war. You've been discharged, uh, failed that drug test and, been discharged but you were at the highest level in what you did as a commando like you said you you were on the on the um elite side of things that looked after prime ministers and and so on which is pretty massive for a young man that's what 23 24 and uh, up to 26 and then Mm -hmm. uh your whole world has been taken out from under you and i'm going to move straight into 15 rehabs in five years so, yeah, yeah. You, you, like, is the 26-year-old with the girlfriend that said you need help, obviously you went back to war and then, okay, that's only 11 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So, the um, like, I, I remember the, my girlfriend at the time, we, we were good mates back then. Um, we've had to distance ourselves a bit now, but um, she ended up, organizing my first rehab um, when I just I fell apart. Um, and I did that in Bronte in Sydney. Um, and this was after you've been discharged? That, yeah, yeah, this is 2000. So what? Um, so after I left the military, I was fortunate enough because I had a, a good enough name and um, good enough soldier and I went contracting. I did that. So I worked for the State Department for a while and then I worked for the Australian Embassy um, until, again, my behavior, my using, the wheels derailed. I lost. I lost that job, mm. um, and it was just. There's a common theme when I drink. When I when I drink and use, I lose things. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I lose things which are important to me. Yeah. And it's like it took me years to fucking realize that I'm just like when you drink, bad shit happens, right? Yeah. Um, so I lost that job, but I was doing it for around two years, and that was a that it just reinforced what I was doing. I was a rock star. I did two months on, one off, got paid really well, traveled the world until. I can't do that anymore. And um, addiction is progressive. Uh, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. Yeah. Um, and I, I, yeah, I remember so. hearing that so many times. I'm like, I, I can control this. I can control it. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't surrender. No, nah, nah, I'm a soldier. I don't surrender. I had to learn. I have to surrender. I have to stop trying to fight this thing. And uh, that first rehab, I lasted two weeks, and then deliberately sabotaged that. Uh, left. Went straight to South America. And I was there for like six months and just went to Europe and end up coming back, trying to get a job again. I had my security licenses. I managed that for a while. And then that lasted a short amount of time. Wheels fell off. And then I started this theme of I would go into uh, a treatment facility. I would get better. Uh, so I'd do around four weeks. Um, now I know four weeks is nowhere near long enough for a treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do four weeks. I come out. Okay, and I'd white knuckle it. Um, I'd st- I wouldn't go to meetings. I wouldn't uh, follow an upper aftercare plan. So I'd last anywhere between four weeks to three months, 12 weeks, and then the wheels would come off. And each time this happened, I got worse and worse and worse. Um, I end up um, spending a lot of my time up in Newcastle at Toronto Hospital with a, a psychiatrist there. He was military, um, Dr. Staker, a good dude. And um, he tried to, this is probably like treatment eight or nine. He's like, 
we're going to get you um, assessed by the state health. We're going to try to get you locked up for twelve months oh. because you're yeah, you're you're gonna you're gonna die like you are suicidal. Like um, I was self harming. I was um, rolling vehicles. I was, uh, I was doing a lot of crashing, bashing, and just destruction. Pushing the pushing the destruction. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Pushing everyone away from me. Every relationship I had, I was just uh, out of control. Uh, one doctor described me as a loose cannon. So yeah. when he explained what loose cannon means, but back in the day when the the cannon was on the ship and the bolts rust and it's just flying around everywhere, waiting to go off. And if you're in front of it when it explodes you got hit by a loose cannon. So now everyone's distancing, distancing himself from me because yeah, yeah. they know something's going to go off. Yeah. Um, so was that and, him section, you know, was, that, was that sectioning? Did he section you? Um, so he tried to – I got assessed by New South Wales Health for this. There's like 12 beds in New South Wales where you go in and you do not come out like for 12 months and you've got to go through a series of uh, evaluations by doctors. But the sectioning – by this, the uh, police or ambulances, that happened a dozen times <laughs> oh, wow. where I, was, I spent two to well, – anywhere from sort of – generally you got to do a couple of days. Anywhere from two to – I think my longest was two weeks in um, a mental health uh, facility um, where you, there's no rights. You're just in a padded, padded uh, room. Anyone who's listening who's been sectioned, you know, how that feels and that's um, – Horrible. Yeah, it's not good. It's not, yeah, it's, it's, it is horrible, but I understand it's necessary. They're trying to protect you and trying to protect the society. Absolutely. And so you're with this doctor who's trying to get you evaluated to get into this this system uh, with New South Wales Health. Yeah, so he he they um, he tells me to try to be as truthful as possible, but he says, I know you're going to bullshit him. <laughs> so <laughs> when they come in, when they come in, they assess me and uh you know, unfortunately, in the um, in this space where you're getting assessed, there's a key few key um, few things which they will ask you, and you need to answer in a certain way. And if you answer these a certain way, then they can't really do anything. Um, so I answer these questions, and they um, they said to him that well, we can't. We see he's he's out of control, but he's not a real, uh, an immediate risk. So it didn't. It fell through. Um, and I just went back out sort of crashing and bashing. And he was a doctor who really explained to me, he said, you need to get away from using and get, you need to let your brain heal because all you've known since you were 22 is war where that um, being at war, explosions, adrenaline, losing mates, you know, being shot, like the, all this, what this does to your hormones and your, you know, your chemistry in your brain. And then you come back and abuse yourself and you did this for, in 10 years like the same pattern so my brain wasn't even fully mature i don't mm. think it really matures till mid 20s now. so yeah i i damaged i damaged mine um so he was the first one to explain me like you need time out a long time out and it goes back to um in the military they stop you going back to war every year for this to let you yeah. uh, come to homeostasis homeostasis yeah yeah homeostasis yeah. yeah look i've heard a lot of stuff about the amygdala with with people coming back from the war and how purposefully and and much needed that when you go through your training, they want your amygdala to be like double the size of it is. And our amygdala is a part of our brain that it's it's up in here that is our reactionary part of our brain. So it's where our fight and flight or fr- freeze mechanism is and it keeps us alive, exactly. So without any 
real training, there's no coming back from war or battle or being a part of the army, there's no training to bring the amygdala back down to its normal size and teach us how to coherently get out of the amygdala and back into our prefrontal cortex. And that is for a logical person who's had their prefrontal cortex fully developed. And that doesn't happen for males until they're 25. Here you are at 22 in the army with an oversized amygdala and then all you know is destruction that brings adrenaline. You're a rock star over there. Come back here and it's just blah. And so what are you going to do? Of course, that's pretty normal. I have to ask this question of you is, uh, and I, I, you know, I hope I don't uh, offend you with this, but why did you keep going? Back to war? No, or, no, no, no. Uh, why did you? You had oh, oh, 15 oh, rehabs and oh, twice. Ah, using it. Why did you? Uh, keep, sorry, why sorry, did yeah. you? But not even keeping using. What stopped you from taking your own life? Why did you keep going? In a way, I, I felt like I probably had two, probably multiple personalities. Uh, I had the one which sort of was chasing the dragon and just wanted to go over the edge. Just, just had that uh, that ending for my my story and then i had the part of me which is like i want i can still come out the other side of this i can still still do well in life um but the reason i kept going back to using was i didn't know how to live a life without something you have something to control uh, my anxiety control my feelings let me wear my superman cape in life I didn't have anything um, so and I kept tricking myself thinking that each time I got clean and sober and went back out that I could manage it um, so and, and even though it got worse and worse and worse and at this point I think you know, I've got covered in scars but now I, I covered up everything with tattoos um, you know and I, I'll explain this to my daughter when she's old enough and I, I was in a, a really bad place but uh, with everything that still happened to me, I kept lying to myself thinking that I was different and I was going to be able to use and be able to use it like everyone else, all my mates who were still managing to use safely. Uh, that's why I was in denial. Um, I didn't listen to all the uh, advice, support I was getting from old timers and my therapists and uh, my doctors. And I, I kept lying to myself because I didn't want to accept it. We, we've recently just released a podcast with Dr. Arna Rubenstein. He is a rights of passage expert and a leadership expert here in Australia and travels the world with this. Do you, like, and I know that we can look back and go, well, if only this happened, then I maybe not be like this. But do you believe that if you were ushered through something uh, through that period of time from the age of, maybe 13 to 22, if you were ushered through something that gave you more of an understanding of what a young man could go through, do you believe that this still may have happened? Um, if, if, like I think it really goes back to when I was young, when I watched the things going on with mum and dad and uh, trying to be that hero and protector, uh, quite possibly you know, I wouldn't have enjoyed the military in it. Um, I think... I am predisposed to addiction. Okay. Uh, I don't. I don't fully believe there was the military that did this. Yeah, I believe it definitely contributed, but I believe that 
uh, I was predisposed at a young age with the comfort eating, with the exercise. I seen that I didn't want to be just John. I wanted I had to use other things to make myself feel wanted and um, needed in this world. So became a I think I was always I was always gonna I was always gonna become an addict of some type. Yeah. So it became a part of your culture and your identity early on in life. That yeah. that this you were predisposed to it. Mate, what's can, yeah. what stopped it? What what was the trigger that you went finally you went uh, finally became very self-aware and took total responsibility from where you're at. What was the, was there one thing or was it a particular rehab, like 15 rehabs in five years and sectioned so many times and crash cars, suicidal, self-harming, all that stuff. How did, how did you survive that? What was the thing that actually tipped you over the edge and said, that's fucking it. I'm, I'm, I'm now going to get myself sorted out. Yep. Two things. Um, I always aspired to have a family. Uh, I always wow. wanted to that opportunity to pass on to my my children what uh, maybe I didn't get uh, taught and what the upbringing I didn't have. So I wanted to pass that on. So that's back there. That's that's feet. That's you know part of my um, part of my story. But the thing where I said, okay, this is it's uh, at the at the end, like this has to change. Or I, I'm, I'm dead. Is uh, I lost my sanity, uh, and like I'd spent a lot of time in um, psychosis, in uh, especially like on methamphetamine in Melbourne, uh, like in a different reality. And I was in. So what actually happened was I came to Spain. I actually went to Poland to get an end abuse injection with a mate, and um, this is just before COVID happened. And uh, like I, I went to Poland, um, went to send the doctors, going to get an end abuse injection, and now when you're using like you're never going to follow through with what you committed to. And what ended up happening was he, my mate, uh, had to go back to Australia. So I come to Spain and um, I got stuck here at the start of COVID. So I literally come through Italy and then the, the airport shut. Uh, I was in a hotel. I got kicked out of the hotel. I was on the street for two weeks. Um, it was a crazy time. <laughs> it was a crazy <laughs> it was, time. It was, it was, in, in, in Europe, it was really crazy. Mm. Um, and so this has fed my addiction more where, okay, and then I – um, met some bad people. I got an apartment in Barcelona and I just got worse and worse. I did two stints in rehab and I remember after in my last, um, before my last rehab, so this 14th, I come out to um, my my girlfriend who we'd met in, in a rehab in Byron Bay years before. She got back to Spain at this time because she was isolated in Thailand because she got stuck there. So she got back to Spain um, Come and found me in a, an apartment, and um, so when I when I relapse, I get to the point where I've got to go to ICU to detox because I, I just <laughs> go way too deep. And um, I remember going to uh, the fifteenth rehab, and um, bef- before that, um, actually before that story, um, I'd been. This is the the last time I'd actually got taken by police, and I was self harming. And uh, handcuffed to a bed, um, like I'd shoot myself. I'd thought something like really, there's a lot of fear. Uh, something was going on that wasn't going on. And I remember like a bit of a, like a moment of this is your life now. Like this is you for the rest of your life. And I wanted the family and I, that insane thinking, that psychosis. And I'm like, there's a good chance if I keep doing this, I'm not going to come out of it. And if people had warned me for years about this psychosis, like, and the mental health, like you push it too far, and that happens to people where you just 
you go and you, you never come back. So I was lucky enough to get out of that. Um, I did the treatment. My my girlfriend then, who's my wife now, supported me as she always sort of did. And um, I come out and then I started an aftercare program, which I'd never done before. <laughs> and I, I come to Mallorca, which I live in Spain now in, in Mallorca, and I started working with a therapist. But that was it. It was I was that crazy where I I was never, I, I thought I wasn't going to come back. Wow. I wasn't going to be, yeah. And it's, it's still like there's a little bit of craziness comes to me there when I hear certain birds and I'm like, that's what I used to hear. And like, yeah, you know, my yeah. phone's always been tapped and like mm. all these fucking crazy things. And it's just like that's the place I go to. But now like I'm um, not using and, and staying in that, that shit and that grey cloud and feelings of, you know, it's a terrible place to be in them. That's yeah. So that's, that was essentially it. I went crazy. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, I'm super grateful that you you made it through and then followed the aftercare program, which is really really important. Lost sanity. It's it's like I put it this way, and not that I I'm coaching or anything like that. No, I put it this way: is there's always a part of us that's going to cry out in the worst and the most. Those, those times where maybe the voice is loud early on, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But then the voice gets quieter and quieter and quieter and quieter until we almost don't hear it. And sometimes that, that moment, it's like our spirit saying, this is the moment where you can choose whether or not you're going to survive or you're going to stay in this place and it will take your life. And I'm super grateful that you heard that that voice, mate, because uh, you're still here, and now you're doing incredible things. In fact, uh, your fitness and health program is changing people's lives, and you're, you've said that that is the one thing that you've now found that has actually changed your life and and making your life made your life for the better. So, could you just explain that to everyone, please? Yeah. So you know, you asked for it, finding uh, you know John. Who is John? And um, now I, I, I feel like I went back to my grassroots with my sport and my fitness and what my sort of, uh, ideology and motto is that fitness, I use fitness as a tool in recovery. And the reason for this is, um, it's sort of ever, ever changing. There's so many different, um, modalities for it, but what it does is gives you confidence. Um, it gives you a purpose, but most importantly is, is a self-esteem. So in yeah. addiction, we don't have a self-esteem and this is part of the reason we keep doing what we're doing and we don't like ourselves we don't like the behaviors we don't like what we've become so we use and okay it's we sort of detach from it but find fitness you um, it gives self-esteem and this is why i work with clients here uh, who are in recovery and this is what we work on it's like not the ego it's not about getting a good body it's about being proud of yourself yeah um it's about yeah making those steps like it's you know it's losing weight getting faster lifting more like that's a byproduct of um Turning up, having a structure, uh, having a, um, a schedule, and you go back to the basics. And you go to any any rehab. This is what they do. You have structure. You get up in the morning. You eat well. You go to bed early. You know what the day looks like. You plan. Uh, you execute, and you do that long enough, and things start to level out. And it's not, um, you know, in um, in, in addiction, it's like chaotic and instant instability, and you don't know what's happening, and it sort of feeds you, but exercise and using fitness um, as a tool in recovery gives you the opportunity to um, just uh, develop those skills again, which is just structure, routine, and then you build upon that. Yeah, That's fantastic. 
and now you're a coach. You you coach people through, and obviously yep. recovering recovering yep. addicts and recovering people coming out of of uh, of rehabs as well. You're actually now coaching uh, people to get. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, You've actually got an online program that you can coach anyone in the world with your fitness program yeah, yeah so i've got I, yeah i've got guys um, in australia i've got guys in uk dubai um different places and as well as i, I coach in uh, athletes as well in the sport i compete in but um my passion is with people in recovery that's where i because yeah. it's where i come from i know the value of it so i'm actually i work with um, the therapists that helped me get through the last well, three years in november um clean and sober and uh we've been working together well so we we work yeah we do um some stuff here with Clients who want to come to Mallorca, uh, it's, it's a beautiful island. They come here and they come into some um, outpatient programs and I work with them as a bit of a mentor. Yeah. And that's, I, that's, that's, that's what I like. That's what I like doing. That's, that's my passion, yeah. That's amazing, mate, and, and well done. Uh, I'm super proud of the fact that you're doing that, not just uh, going into a world where the fitness and health is and coaching in it, but giving back or or working back to those people who are actually, you know. Service, yeah. You know, service. Yeah, you know, you know well. So really, really well done. Uh, tell us a little bit about your values. You've got discipline, optimism, trustworthy courage, and challenge as your values. Obviously, they're, and this is what I think that that they all they're all an incredible set of values. Discipline, being optimistic, uh, being trustworthy, being courageous, and loving a challenge. But they can all all have been used in that other life as well, you know, being disciplined in actually doing the things that you didn't want to do, and and having optimism that oh no, look, tomorrow is going to be a better day. I can, I'm I'm in, I'm in control of this, and you know, the trustworthiness is the trustworthiness is is almost like oh, well, I can trust myself to be able to get out of this, and courage is I'm doing this, and and uh, challenging yourself always is taking yourself to another level. How did you flick the switch on making them the most positive set of values that you have? Well, yeah, I've always had had the values, and in um in addiction, like I lost all of them. I lost all those. And okay, it wasn't right. who I am. So yeah, bring, yeah I, and uh, those those um those values are what got me to special forces. Those values are what got me to where I achieved things. Then I addiction and using took them away. So. I had to, and this is what fitness did, is it allowed me to instill those again and be the biggest ones of those of those values is the being trustworthy again. People actually, when I say I'm going to do something, I do it, and being courageous and uh, it's sort of being a bit brave. And um, being brave and courageous is not about having no fear. It's about having fear but doing it anyway. Yeah, like exactly. Me sharing, my, me sharing my story and being vulnerable. Uh, it took me a long time to work up to do this because – People were going to look at me. They're going to hear me. They're going to judge me. And I needed to understand that, like, it helps me, but more importantly, it helps other people know that it's okay to um, to have come from shit and been through the shit and then you can turn your life around and um, actually owning that stuff and not letting it define you now is is um, what, I, what I like to do. And that's the whole point of me doing stuff like this is to be a bit of a role model and show people it can be done. Yeah. When you talk about trustworthiness, how important is being trustworthy to yourself over being trustworthy to others? That's, yeah. So we talked about self esteem, where self esteem is a bit different than confidence. You, to have self esteem, you've got to do esteemable things. So you've got to do things you know which are, okay, like, uh, okay, I, I, 
people think I did the right thing, but I know I could have, you know, done a little bit better or, you know, like simple things like helping someone pick up groceries or drop. Like you walk past someone and you're like, I could have helped them. Uh, keep going. Like that's their own business. But you know there's something in you that's like you could have helped. Like that esteem is I know that I'm doing the right thing and you can't take that away from me. And um, um, it's like not like telling the truth. And like if you don't tell the truth, there's something that's like you haven't been truthful. Mm. Like there's that voice in there. So it's all that it's all sort of um, mixed all together for me the way the way I see it. Like I'm just I'm proud of who I am, and that's not who I was in addiction. Mm, yeah, you know, it was a really good point what you made about the fact because of those values disappeared when addiction came in, and the the need for us to live by our values that keeps us in check, like keeping your word to yourself. Uh, is trustworthiness and without keeping your word to yourself like what have you really got at the end of the day you don't have a lot if you can't keep your word to yourself you're going to pivot out of it so living by your values and mate well done to actually get those back and re-establish those as pillars in your life uh, of be you, you want to be a role model is what you said well I, I would dare say that you are have become one just by reactivating those values in your life and and living by those I've taken a lot of your time now and, and your young daughter, what, what's her name again? Yeah. Adara. Adara. She's probably going to be knocking on the door soon saying, Dad, come out and yeah, play. That 20 months of yeah. old. Uh, I do want to ask, what is Hyrox? Just for everyone listening, now I've looked at a little bit of this and this is as, as nuts as it's a bit like CrossFit. It's a little bit like all that sort of stuff. But, you know, I think they have the F45 challenge around the world as well. But what is Hyrox? So Horox is a functional fitness race. So it's a fitness race which um, it's a it's a hybrid a hybrid um, a sport competition. So it's hybrid in the fact that it's running and strength, strength endurance, and functional fitness. It's not. I see a lot of hybrid athletes now who are they bodybuild and they run. So they're hybrid athlete. Yeah, it's sort of. But I guess what I do is I am a hybrid athlete. So um the and it's coming to us the first races in australia this year in okay. sydney and melbourne so what it is is um it's uh a, a one kilometer run and then you do a station and that's repeated eight times so in total you run 8.7 kilometers and you've got stations to do um at the end of each kilometer so the stations are a, a one kilometer ski erg a 50 uh, meter 200 kilo sled push 150 kilo sled pull, that's 150 kilos, um, 80 meters of burpee with a jump, uh, wow. one kilometer row, th- 32 kilo kettlebells, two of them you got to run 200 meters, wow. 100, meter, 100 meters of lunges with 30 kilos on your shoulder, and then 100 war balls to finish with, um, at nine kilos. And now this, this, this sport is, it's been out five, six years and it's growing. It's one of the fastest growing sports in the world because – it has the mixture mixture of, of running and, and strength. Functionality. So, yeah. so CrossFit, yeah, CrossFit's a bit of a competitor because um, it's it's like a it's a hybrid, I guess you could say. Functional fitness there, but what they they work in time domains of two minutes to twenty. Yep. So they're a lot of strength power. We're uh, endurance. So we uh, like I'm one of the fastest in the world now, and uh, I run it in. in um, 56 minutes, 58 is my wow, fastest ridiculous. time. And, um, yeah, okay. So I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a 10K runner. So I've got a, a sub 36 10K now at, you know, mid 80 kilos. And, but I can still 
uh, deadlift nearly two times my body weight, 1.5 squat. So I can still, I'm still strong, but I have to be able to run and this is not CrossFit. Mm. So what it does is it's opened it up for the every, every day sort of, um, different style. Uh, want to be athlete, I guess. Mm. Yeah. To, to come and run. Like you don't have to be elite like what I do, but anyone can do it. And there's, a, there's two different categories. There's a pro, which is what I do. And then there's an open, which is the weights lighter. Yeah. But what it does is like you get the, the cardiovascular benefits, but then you've got the strength. So they complement each other and it's not technical like CrossFit. Okay. So there's no there's no Olympic lifts, there's no there's not a real risk of injuring yourself bad because a lot of it is frontal plane, so moving forward. Yeah. But so um the yeah, a lot of runners uh, have issues because they don't do much strength training. Okay. Now in this you have to strength train. So they they protect each other. Yeah. So you're getting the strength benefits plus the cardiovascular benefits and it's it's getting huge. There's more money coming to it. Um, and me, me getting into it, I uh, got into it because of my, my military background. I seen that had running. I had to teach myself to run again because um, I was told I couldn't run again after knee surgery in the military. And um, I went through that process and uh, I'm good at it because it's tough. Yeah. And, um, I imagine. Yeah, and I've, I, seen, I it, I've yeah. seen how big it is gotten around the world really quickly. Huge, uh, yeah. So your ranking uh, sixth in the world? Yeah, so I got sixth at the World Champs last year, my, my first real year. Yeah. So that's within uh, – I started running about 18 months ago. Wow. I got my volume up and um, I've become a 10-kilometer runner. Not, not, I'm not a great runner. Like in a running race, I don't do that well. But um, I don't know. my size Thir- and my I don't know. 36-minute 10Ks is pretty bloody good. Yeah, it's about 335 a kilometer mm-hmm. average, yep. which is for, my, for our size. But there's guys who are way faster than me. Yeah. But, um, what makes me good at this is I can run fast enough so I can I can spend 60 minutes at about 92, 93% of my max heart rate, which okay. is elite athlete. That's, that's that's what threshold is. So, And it's really like I can do this because of the shit I've been through and uh, this is what I, I draw on. Um, uh, and a lot of the guys do this were older guys who were, were mature guys who have been through a bit of suffering, I guess, yeah. because it is. And um, the guys who, if you're competing in Australia in these races, you will see, like, it's uh, to be able to push a 200-kilo sled and then mm. run it, uh, run a kilometre after, and I can I can do that at about 348 on average. Wow. It's 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 a lot of just mental toughness. Um, and that's sort of how I've, I'm getting a bit of a name for myself over here, but, you know, ex-Special Forces, ex-addict who does high rocks, and um, I'm, I'm quite good at it, but it's – it's my past experiences which uh, helped me do this. Yeah. Uh, so well, well done, well stuff. done, well done for that, yeah. mate. Six in the world. What's the goal? Uh, this year I'll be going top three. Um, uh, it's going to be a lot of work because there's more competitors coming because there's more money coming. Um, yeah. So I've got to get faster. But uh, at, the, at the world champs, I made a mistake and I ran too many laps. So I would have potentially been top three, but that's okay. Like uh, it's part of you need to make sure you count laps and. Um, I'll implement some strategies to make sure that doesn't happen again. But I, I, I have belief I can get top three this year. But it's going to be a, a lot of work, um, a lot of uh, a lot of hours, a lot of. Uh, well, well, I'll be rooting for you to get top three. Thanks, mate. I can't say I'm going to join that. Like you never know, more. <laughs> more. It sounds good. I, I like the format. Uh, I, I like functional training. I do a bit of beach work and stuff like that with my coach. Yep. Mate, we're just going to stitch this up now. But I, I yep. would like to ask you what you would say to your 12-year-old self. Hmm. 
don't think take don't take things so seriously. Yeah, that's really good advice. And and just to finish, mate, what advice would you pass on to like? I mean, you could say this to anyone because you, what you've gone through is a broad spot, broad stroke, but especially guys who are in the military. Hmm. I've actually thought about a lot of um, you know, what I was in recovery, what I say to people in recovery because I, I get lots of messages and how to support them. The guys in the military is you're not invincible. You're not uh, um, like you're, you're special, but you're not that special. Yeah, like you're. Yeah, you're not, not invincible, I guess, is the best way to, to sum it up. Well, John, thank you, mate. You are an absolute inspiration in for how you've recovered, what you're doing now. And like I said, and I'm going to echo it, you you, you want to be an impact in the world, but I think you already are because you're holding yourself accountable. You're taking responsibility for your life and you've got a beautiful little baby girl and you're functioning well in, in society and – I'm looking forward to seeing the ripple effect that you do, mate. Keep shining your light bright, brother. No, thanks very much. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to come on here. And, um, you know, like I do this because I think it, there's people out there, there's always someone out there who might resonate with. And, um, yeah, just uh, it's never too late to change. And, um, you know, let the change be that, you know, I live and you live, I help others. And that's, that's when you have a purpose like that, things change and you see the world differently. Amazing. Amazing, mate. Uh, and listen, we're going to try and get you back on after your uh, next challenge with the High Rocks and see how you went with getting to number three in the world. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be great to come back on. Thanks, yeah. mate. Awesome, buddy. Thanks. That was the end of another episode. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you've enjoyed this episode, I would love for you to rate, review and subscribe as this will help me get my message out to more people. If you've heard anything today that has resonated with you, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at Nath Cartledge. All the other ways to contact me will be in the show notes. I'd love to chat and hear your thoughts. Can't wait to conflab next week.